if no one cares, it's hard for any winning lawsuit to change our society. But but when people do care, the law can be an incredible tool for social change and to check the kinds of injustices that we're seeing in this administration. What is the implication of nature's place in society based on the values that the United States was founded on? How can litigation support the environmental movement, and how do policies, laws, and regulations differ and fit into this picture? That's just the tip of the iceberg of what you'll hear today. Green Dreamer is supported by our listener patrons and Buns, a community where people meet every day to trade things like clothing, houseplants, furniture, and art. You can check it out first by downloading the app Buns, that's spelled B-U-N-Z, on your smartphone, and I'll tell you more later. For now, to our conversation with Abby Dillon, the president of Earth Justice, which you may have heard before. It's a nonprofit that uses the courts to protect our environment and people's health, because as their tagline goes, the earth needs a good lawyer. They've been doing this since 1971, and they're literally the legal backbone for the entire environmental movement, representing their clients free of charge. Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast for creatives, visionaries, and entrepreneurs dreaming of a sustainable future. Thank you for bringing your light. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. Well, it wasn't through a necessarily sustainable doorway. I went to law school, and... I regretted my choice in the beginning. <laughs> I went to Berkeley's law school. It was called Bolt Hall at the time. And there were some really amazing professors who'd made the environment their life's focus. And the world of law came alive to me in a different way in that setting. And I had the incredible good fortune to come to Earth Justice. Law students in their second year will often go for the summer to clerk and really understand what real practice is like at a law firm. Or in my case, I I managed to get a clerkship at Earth Justice. And I went out to Montana and I just, it completely changed my feeling about my choice to go into the law. I saw my career path and I was lucky enough to be able to pursue it. What was it specifically that made you change your mind? Was it seeing how empowering it could be in terms of how you could support environmental well-being and justice? Or what was that light bulb moment for you? I think the power that you have as an individual or a very small group of individuals to protect the environment using our laws in the United States, it's it's addictive. Mm. (laughs) We think of environmental problems correctly as systems problems. So, you know, reforming the most influential industries who have every reason to destroy the environment for profit, the environment is so full of collective action problems, the the casebook tragedies of the commons are all environmental. And so I think we tend to internalize a sense of despair around the future of the environment, and we forget that we as a society in this country and around the world have come together. We have very strong laws to protect our air, our water, the natural world, 
We need stronger laws to protect the climate, but many of the laws that we have on the books already give us purchase to be able to force change and 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 win asymmetrical fights. And I think seeing how a small group of lawyers, we were working out of a little house in Bozeman, Montana at that time, could go up against the federal government and change the course of history to, to protect places, animals that I could see in real time. That was extraordinary, and I've never gotten over it. Mm. Well, in case our listeners hearing about Earth Justice for the first time, can you briefly share its mission and approach with us? Earth Justice harnesses the power of law to protect people, magnificent places, and to advance clean energy and a climate that will carry us into our next generations safely. We never charge for our services, and we represent some of the biggest environmental nonprofits to some of the smallest fence line community groups. Again, always for free. I remember hearing you saying elsewhere that now more than ever, we really need lawyers representing the environment and representing the earth. So how does that work in practice? Is it usually through lawsuits with people that face environmental concerns or what are these projects look like? Well, we have over 160 lawyers working around the country and internationally. So the kinds of levers that we can pull legally vary and we do lots of different kind of work. But let me talk about some of the pieces of work that are at our core that everybody should know at this time where in the U.S. our democracy is really under siege. So it's not always a given that you can sue your own government, but in the United States we can. And our government can be held accountable to a very strong set of what I think of as the bedrock environmental laws, the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, the Endangered Species Act. These were all laws, and there are more of them, the National Environmental Policy Act, which ensures the government always looks before we leap into funding a new project or making new rules or determining how we can use the public lands that belong to all of us. The federal government has enormous power to affect our everyday lives, but they are subject to very strong laws that govern all of the actions, for instance, of the Trump administration now. So-called citizen supervisions were part of these laws that came out of a, a surge in awareness in the 1970s. It was when Earth Day first started. It's when we first created the Environmental Protection Agency. And there was a recognition that our government was failing us when it came to protecting the environment. This was the time of Silent Spring when, when it was suddenly a worry that we wouldn't have birds hatching in eggs anymore because of rampant chemicals in our environment rivers on fire in Ohio. All of this to say, there was this moment of awareness that the people had to be able to hold the government to account. So strong laws requiring really significant comprehensive protection were passed in a bipartisan way. And, and here's the, the invention that I would love to see other countries pick up. Congress understood that there was political pressure and resource constraints that would always keep the federal government falling short of its environmental obligations. And so it gave people like you and me the power to sue the government, to force it to act, or to sue in the place of the government. So if you have a, a very 
power, for instance, the oil and gas industry is very powerful in this country, particularly now. And oil and gas industry lobbyists are running our federal agencies. That's a moment where there is insufficient political will to hold these companies to account as we see one of the biggest expansions of oil and gas drilling in our history. I can not only sue the EPA and the Department of Interior for failing to protect our lands, protect us from oil and gas pollution, I could also sue Exxon or Shell directly in place of the government if they aren't meeting their environmental requirements, and that's often the case. So that that's an extraordinary power. It's one we shouldn't take for granted. And it leads us into the courts where you know, this is the one arena we have left where fake facts don't work and where you can't determine the outcome just by injecting money. We have such a money in politics problem in this country, and it and it does extend to some of the ways in which judges are appointed. But once you get into court, it's it's a level playing field for you and me against even the most moneyed corporate interests. Do you think we should be taking this approach even more? So focusing more on taking these cases to law and trying to fight for environmental environmental health and justice through this avenue? Well, I think in the best of times, the most powerful movements are built through aggressive litigation. Think about the civil rights movement would never have moved as far and as fast as it did without great lawsuits, great lawyers, amazing, courageous plaintiffs, and fair courts, relatively fair courts. So litigation is always a piece of the puzzle, but it makes its greatest impact when it's accompanied by elected officials who follow suit and change the laws in Congress and state houses, when you have a really activated public who's holding their their officials accountable. And, and in, in our case, as we're talking about the environment and climate change, making those things a voting issue. The law is a tool to catalyze change, but it, we can't do it all just through the courts. We all need to take our roles in this democracy, in this society very seriously and have a very robust movement for change that gets the right people in office doing the right things day after day. In a moment like this, you know, what shortly after the 2016 election, the senior leadership at Earth Justice, we was a small group of people. We were sitting in a room and in New York and we recognized that we were going to see unprecedented attacks on the environment and on our bedrock tools to protect it. And so we knew we had to build our organization and put more of those great lawyers great legal advocates, communicators out there to make sure that the courts could be a check on corruption and industry overreach in this administration. And we knew we couldn't stand still, that these are the last years we have left to really transform our society and rein in our carbon emissions. So the law can also be a tool affirmatively. And one of the things that I think is really generative is that we're able to make the case for clean energy and push forward community vision for what the 
cities of the future can look like. And it's, it's not only a vision that protects a planet that you and I can look forward to living our, <laughs> out our days on with our children, but, but that can immediately resolve intractable problems. And when we have so much air pollution in this country, it turns out clean energy can alleviate those problems. We have communities where we have economic injustice, economic stagnation. Clean energy can be one of the great engines of a new economy. And that, those are the kinds of possibilities that, that actually lawyers can help advance in crazy forums that I don't think I would have ever known about <laughs> when, I, when I went to law school, like public utility commissions. We make all of the decisions about how to spend our money, what the infrastructure in our city should look like, where we get our energy from, how we use it. We make these decisions through effectively trials. And so that's a place where lawyers can really make a difference too, as long as we have clients and community around us who hold our officials accountable and take the decisions before us seriously. If, if no one cares, it's hard for any winning lawsuit to change our society. But, but when people do care, the law can be an incredible tool for social change and to check the kinds of injustices that we're seeing in this administration. Well, I'd like to take a step back a little bit and get your thoughts on the role of nature in our highest orders of law. So our Constitution, Bill of Rights, amendments. What are the implications of nature's place in society when we look at the values that uh, the United States was founded on? Such an interesting question, and it's a really live question right now around the world. There are many countries that recognize the rights of nature, and it's worth stepping back to fully appreciate what that means. In the U.S., we live in such an anthropocentric world and legal system. And so nature has often been thought of as something that's a resource to be extracted. We talk about natural resources and our relationship to nature as it's governed by law is really about sort of the services that nature provides us and how much any one person can aggregate those services or erode them for their own profit, et cetera. But it's people are really at the center of our environmental laws with the exception of the Endangered Species Act. But even there you have, uh, it's a very strong law that recognizes the precautionary principle, first do no harm. It is meant to ensure that we're always using the best available science and not compromising science for economic gain. So I think it's the law in the U.S. that best reflects the value, the intrinsic value of, of the natural world. And it's under fierce attack right now. Both There are always efforts in Congress to dismantle it. And there is a really, really troubling effort to gut all of the regulations that implement that law right now. And it, I think it reflects a, a deep suspicion about the role of nature in our world on the part of, of a huge swath of our society. And it's, it's troubling to me because I think we're seeing right now what happens when we don't give appropriate respect and regard to natural systems that we don't fully understand. Mm -hmm. And 
now is a time as, as you know, the human influence on the planet is at its zenith. And now is the time to give imperiled species, natural systems like coral reefs, as much room to heal, to restore as possible. And I think that's why you're seeing in other countries that do have perhaps a recognition of the rights of, of nature, but but perhaps a less strong rule of law. You often see an inverse relationship between the strength of the law and its enforceability. So there are many countries that recognize, for instance, the right of a dolphin to be in court and the right of that particular individual animal. Uh, in the U.S., you would be hard pressed to make that case. But sometimes it's very hard in the courts that recognize those rights to have them vindicated appropriately. But I do it, it in my career. This has always been an interesting and important thread of legal inquiry. And I think it's I think the role of nature and the rights of nature are really coming to the fore in, a, in an interesting way right now, because I think we see as a species that nature is under siege because of us. So on the one hand, we have perhaps our most ecocentric law, like the Endangered Species Act, that's that's kind of being torn down. And at the same time, we have laws that support continued extraction kind of being stuck. I remember I studied environmental studies at university, and I remember very clearly when I took environmental law that we have our mining law of 1872 and our Taylor Grazing Act of 1934, both of which haven't changed to reflect inflation as well as our diminishing available resources, if we had to call it that, and uh, deteriorating environmental health. And I learned that it was something, it was because of something called the Iron Triangle, but can you expand upon this or add to this in any way? So why is it so hard to change existing laws? And what does it take to actually make that happen? Sure. And and let me just say that our Endangered Species Act is not, it has not been torn down yet. We've been very successful in beating back any attacks to weaken it in Congress. And I think we will be successful in fending off efforts to gut its implementation in the courts. But that said, it's, it's, it's just a flag that I think this goes to the heart of your question, which is, why is it so hard to change our laws? Well, the good news is, is that a lot of the efforts to change them have been efforts to weaken them in recent years. And it turns out these laws that protect the web of life, that protect clean air, that protect clean water, they're very popular. And so as hard as Congress has been trying to erode them, it's proven to be too unpopular so far. And it's really important that your listeners and everyone we know who, who cares about them continues to stand up for them. Why can't we modernize laws that were passed, you know, in the case of mining and two centuries ago, and in the case of even what we think of as the modern regulatory state, we really haven't done major amendments to our laws in almost 50 years. And why is that? Well, I'm really, I'm interested in, in your, your sort of the theory that the iron triangle theory, my view just based on experience is that the pressure to weaken these laws is so high on the part of industry. And when you have so much corporate power that's been only magnified by decisions like Citizens United, 
it's very hard to open up a law without subjecting it to weakening by very powerful corporate interests. I think we've had we've seen a pendulum swing, you know, in the 1970s was this moment of awareness. And as a society, we put together the EPA, we got going on a series of of strong laws. They've been very successful. But at a certain point, we got sort of greedy as a society and and sort of the pendulum struck and we started to hear about government being a bad thing and regulation as being a bad word that implied a cap on prosperity. It's so counterfactual. We know that the richest societies, the most successful societies are the ones that protect their environment the best. But that narrative has gained hold. And I think we're seeing it. I hope it's reaching you know, the other end of the spectrum at this moment in the Trump administration, where you have people literally trying to dismantle the whole enterprise of environmental protection. And I think what we saw in the midterm elections was a bipartisan recognition that that goes too far. And I think climate change is testing our assumptions that we don't need government, that we don't need public investment to protect the planet, it's its becoming so clear, whether you're a farmer in the Midwest or a, someone like me living in wildfires every year in California or someone like many of my clients on the Gulf Coast of Texas and Louisiana and dealing with superstorm season after season, the role that only government can play in protecting us and the need for really strong laws to both limit climate change and and deal with the effects that are already locked in, I think those things are becoming apparent. And I, I hope that we'll see the, the pendulum swing back to an era like the 1970s, where legislation and movement was possible because there was a collective understanding of how absolutely essential it was and, and is now in this moment. Mm. When we think about Earth Justice's work and beyond, what would you say are the biggest differences between environmental cases that are the easiest to win compared to environmental cases that are most challenging to win? My view is this, that when you have the facts on your side, when there is a person or a group of people who have true stakes in a place or, you know, whether it's their backyards and the air they breathe, whether it is a sacred landscape like Bears Ears National Monument, when there are true stakes before the court and you can tell the story of what Congress was trying to protect in our very strong laws, I think there's almost always a path to win. Mm -hmm. And so there are some cases that I think legal commentators would describe as tough cases going on right now. For instance, does President Trump have the authority to roll back Obama-era protections? For instance, uh, President Obama withdrew the Arctic Ocean and areas of the Atlantic from oil and gas drilling under uh, Osla, a statute. And we made the argument that Congress gave presidents the power to protect, but not to undo those protections. So there are some people said that's a hard case and it hasn't been tested, but we just won it 
in district court in Alaska. And we'll see. That case is one that will likely be appealed and more judges will weigh in on it. But to me, it speaks to the point of the stakes are very high. The people who have an interest, the Gwinnett, for instance, in the Arctic Ocean's protection are extraordinarily compelling. And our argument is rooted in, I think, a clear intent of the law to give presidents the power to protect areas that come under threat during their administrations, but that when it comes to opening up new areas for extraction, that's really Congress's prerogative. That's just one example. It's it's sort of the casebook tough case because there isn't settled law on it, but I, it's one that I think we're going to win, continue to win, because I think we have the facts on the side and the spirit of, of the law on our side, as well as the actual black letters uh, printed in the in the U.S. code. Well, when we're considering what the best ways are today to truly create systemic change as quickly as possible so that we can urgently achieve our sustainability goals, I do think, like you mentioned, that we need to be looking at the larger institutions to help put into place the right incentives, standards, and guidelines for industries across the board to follow. And there are a few different avenues for this, enacting policies, passing laws, putting regulations into place to enforce existing laws. Can you briefly walk us through these different areas as they apply to sustainability? Well, all three are really important and and intertwined. So one thing I think we've had, particularly in the face of climate change, is a failure of vision, a failure of comprehensive policy to address this global problem in the time that's required. So it's very important, I think, for us to come together around a suite of policies that will dramatically reduce pollution from the most polluting industries, dramatically ramp up the most important clean energy technologies and allow us to, for instance, electrify everything, our homes, our buildings, our factories, our transportation, our lives with clean energy, and then get at the most cutting edge solutions around agriculture and the other kind of wicked problems that we need to solve to tackle climate change. So that's the the policy piece, the ideas, the path forward needs to be there. The good news is smart people have been thinking about this for a long time. It's not just one idea. It's going to be the collection of many. They're all emerging. The technologies are emerging. And so I think if you can pair all that understanding and knowledge with political will, we can get into a policy space in the time that's that's required. Do we need new laws to implement those policies? Yes, we do. It isn't to say that we don't have really important legal tools right now at our disposal at Earth Justice. We've been using them. We've been using them to stop a rush to coal and retire our coal-fired power plants. We'll be using it to stop a rush to gas and ramp up a clean uh, a power sector that's entirely clean. We can use the law to affect what kind of transportation we invest in or not. We can use the law to determine what kind of cars we all drive. We can use the law to determine how our buildings are heated and cooled. So there's a lot of existing law that we can use aggressively and we must do that. And I think given the time that we have left, it's so great to see states, for instance, experimenting with laws that really move us on that trajectory so much more quickly. So, you know, mandates for 
energy storage, 100% clean energy mandates as we just have had in California and earlier in Hawaii. Those are the kinds of of great laws that can enshrine the policy piece. And then every law, the devil is in the details in terms of getting it to have impact on the ground. And so it's always important to pay very close attention to how agencies like the EPA or the Department of Energy or the Department of agencies at the Department of Interior or in your state are applying that law and making it work in practice. And that's when regulations come into play and a real focus on making sure that the direction that law is set are enshrined in really clear steps forward that are both transparent and enforceable. So of course I'm seeing it all through the lens of a lawyer, but but my experience is that really aspirational policies and laws, even with some good language in terms of regulations, do nothing on the ground unless there's a clear path for enforcing them that people like you and me have a say in enforcing. Mm. And finally, just as you've recognized your power as an individual, what do you think we can do as individual active citizens to support institutional and systemic shifts for a more sustainable future through the lens of law? Part of it, I think, is just recognizing the agency that the public has, that that you and I have in this country to put our laws to work for us. And it's something that is under attack right now. So sometimes it's hard to keep reading the news. Sometimes it's hard to keep talking to elected officials or even your neighbors about the political situation. But one thing I think we can see playing out before us right now is the critical importance of the courts. They are the only check on an administration that is effectively lawless and not just in the environmental sphere. So we know we we ha- we know we have to defend our courts in this democracy. We should make that a voting issue. And we absolutely have to pay attention to whether our elected officials are trying to strengthen and evolve our laws to meet the challenges we face now, or whether they're trying to weaken our laws and the agencies that protect them. And those people are people that should not be in office right now. Just to recognize that the law is critical to making the change that we need in the time we have to make it, that recognition is so important. We take these things for granted, whether it's that we can usually drink the water coming at our tap without fearing for our health or longevity. That's a function of strong laws and effective regulation and accountability. We have to keep those things intact. They are under attack now. And so, you know, to your question, what's the most important way we can make change through a legal lens is understand that that is a critical central way to make change, support the organizations like mine that are doing it for People who are listening to this wondering, you know, how to make a difference in the world, consider going to law school and being part of the change yourselves. But all of us holding a collective accountability as the people in this country for protecting strong laws, the courts and elected officials who share the same view. Do you have things like clothing, furniture, and art lying around your home that you no longer make use of, like I do? 
Well, what if we could exchange them for other people's items that they no longer make use of but that we actually want? Like for me, that would always be more houseplants. When I first heard about the Buns app, I was really intrigued and excited because not only does this promote sustainability through encouraging reuse and trade, but it also fosters a sense of community with like-minded people near us. If you don't find anything that you want in exchange for what you're offering, you can also accept a currency called BITS, that's spelled B-T-Z, that you can then use at an increasing number of local partnering businesses. It takes just a few seconds to download, so head on to the App Store, search for Buns, spelled B-U-N-Z, hit download, and have fun. If you're in Southern California, you may see me on there as well, and I'll be keeping my eye out to see if you have some houseplants that you're putting up there. So I hope to see you on the app soon as well. For now, to our final five. Let's power through. What's an uplifting publication or social media account you follow? Earth justice. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I echo that. What do you tell yourself to stay positive and inspired? We can, we will, we must. What's one thing you're working on right now for your health? Uh, Trying to get some sleep. What's one thing you're working on to live more sustainably? I just got my first electric car and it's powered completely by sunshine from my rooftop. Wow, that's awesome. What makes you most hopeful for our planet at the moment? Young people and clean energy. Where can we follow and support your work online? www.earthjustice.org and look for us on Twitter and Instagram as well. And what final words of wisdom do you have for us as green dreamers? Dreams can become reality and it's our power to make that so. Dreams can become reality and it's our power to make that so. Green Dreamer, thank you so much for tuning in. If you're enjoying the podcast and it's been meaningful or helpful to you in any way, I really hope you'll consider becoming a patron if you're able to so that I can keep the podcast going as a free resource for everybody. To do so, you can head to greendreamer.com slash support. And with that, you'll also gain access to our Green Dreamer network. To support Green Dreamer in alternative ways, you can also share the show on social media with friends and family who may also enjoy the podcast or by writing a hopefully five-star review share what you're enjoying about the show. And also, I am still sending out weekly newsletters containing solutions-driven stories on sustainability and regeneration every single week. So you can sign up for free as well by going to greendreamer.com. Finally, as we're wrapping up, just remember, now more than ever, our planet needs your light to thrive. So if you haven't yet, hit subscribe and I will catch you later, Green Dreamer.